I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. All right, Scott, this is not about to be the coronavirus podcast. Well, we have to keep up to date somehow. Right, but that, that I just want to make it clear to all of the listeners that that is not the main point of discussion today by any means. Um, all I'm going to say um, is that, you know, I urge all of you to continue to think about uh, the folks that are really being impacted in a big way by this crisis, especially the folks um, in the service industry um, and the freelance musicians. And um, in the past two opuses, uh, we, we've opened up by talking about some funds that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, for relief. Um, I'll offer another one today. So New Music USA, um, who I have a, um, a pretty good relationship with. Shout out to Vanessa Reed, who um, uh, runs the ship over there. Um, they have a what they call a New Music Solidarity Fund. So they're offering $500 emergency grants to performers of music by living composers who have been impacted by the COVID-19 cancellation. So, you know, Scott, $500 isn't going to you know, buy you a home or anything, but no, you know, but in a in a pinch, you know, that five hundred dollars is five hundred more dollars on your rent or some food or whatever you have to um, utilities utilities yeah whatever you got going on. So um, if you are performing. A musician and a, a specifically a performer of music by living composers. I really encourage you to take a look at um, what New Music USA is doing. Um, there will be a link um, to uh, with more information in the description of this opus. Um, I'll, I'll just go through a couple of these uh, rules. The New Music Solidarity Fund opens to applicants at noon Eastern on March 31st. So this will have uh, come out um, after that, um, and it's going to run until April 30th. So um, yet another um, resource for you. Yeah. Um, so um, on today's opus of Triloquy, um, the guest is Rob Deemer. We um, recorded this, uh, the interview with him, you know, back at the Sphinx conference. Good, Scott, good thing we backlogged all of these interviews. It's coming you know. in handy right now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, with all the social uh, distancing and all that sort of thing. Um, and, I, and I don't want to uh, spend too much time uh, chit-chatting about that, but um, I, I want to go back to Sam Bergman's opus for a second. So um, the first time that I heard some of the statistics by Rob Bob Deemer, um, it was through Sam. Uh, he just kind of offhandedly said that orchestras are performing more music by Beethoven than by all women composers, you know. Right. And that's something that, you know, kind of hit me, obviously, but I needed some time to let that marinate to actually um, realize what that means. So when I hosted uh, one of the panels I hosted at the Sphinx Conference back in February, um, I brought in some of uh, Rob Deemer's research and um, and highlighted that fact um, specifically, the fact that, again, orchestras are performing more Beethoven than they are women, period. And uh, I thought it was I thought it was women, people of color. Basically, they scooped every minority together, and Beethoven still right outpaced them. Right, it's 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 really crazy, and um and I got a lot of feedback after uh, that panel, um from folks who just you know did not realize, including the sure. uh, current artistic director, um of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. So uh, shout out, shout out to them, um but. You know, it's 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 things like that that we really need to highlight if we're talking about actual change and actual actual equity in classical music. Mm-hmm. I know this is Beethoven uh, uh, 2020, you know, the uh, 250th anniversary, but you know, 
there are so many other composers, and one of the points that uh, you'll hear Rob make in the interview is that we're not asking for folks to cancel Beethoven or cancel all of the um, the quote unquote mainstream the uh, composers. Horses. Yeah, the war horses. We're just saying, and folks like Rob Deemer are just saying that taking one of those Beethoven symphonies or two of those Beethoven symphonies off of your uh, season schedule will open up so much room for music that folks may not know. Um, so um, as, as you'll hear, Rob Deemer um, is a, a Barry sax player uh, turned composer in college, um, a project that he had for some of his students as far as compiling data, uh, what the what the orchestras in America are doing. Um, he realized that that was a bigger project than just a student project. Right. So that um, so he took that on and um, fast forward, um, uh, the Institute for Composer Diversity was born. Um, that is an excellent resource that I have used personally. You know, folks are always saying, well, who are these composers and how can we find out how to make our programming more diverse? We just don't know who these composers are. And the uh, Institute for Composer Diversity website is that place. So I'll put a link to that in the um, description um, of this opus for you to uh, discover what uh, Rob is doing over uh, in upstate New York. Uh, SUNY Fredonia, I believe, um, is where he works. Um, So we talk about that. We talk a little bit about um, some music. Music, you know, he he very politely would not wouldn't answer yeah. what new composer he was excited about. Right, and and I do appreciate his response because all of the new composers are important. So um, again, I really encourage you to go over to the uh, to the description of this opus to find the Institute for Composer Diversity website and and check out what they've put together. Also important to mention that um, you know Rob has a background in radio. He said that he was a public radio oh, announcer he sure did. for a little bit down in Oklahoma. Okay, yeah. so he has that side of it, you know, but uh, meaning that, you know, he's steeped in music. He's not just a statistician or, you know, some sort of a, a numbers guy. He also understands the the music, the art piece, right? Too, and he, so yeah, and again, as I've already mentioned, you know, he's an instrumentalist, a um, a composer. Um, you know, at the end of the opus, Scott, I, I remember now he actually did shout out a couple um, composers, Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think he said Dizzy Gillespie. I'm forgetting the other um, composer he named, maybe Miles Davis. So um, just just very quickly before we get into the conversation with Rob, I wonder, you know, you, you have a background in jazz radio right. as well. You know, uh, when it comes to the war horses, uh, the so-called war horses in that category, it seems like Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, and, and all they those the folks, they, you know, is, um, do, do you see it, you know, from your perspective, is it equitable to uh, focus? Focus on them is Duke Ellington, the Beethoven of of the jazz world, and 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 you know when, when it comes to diversifying the art form and the aural aesthetic. I don't know because uh, you know when I when I was the jazz director at the station that I moved here from, I I was not trying hard at all to miss Miles Davis or John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my favorite things was uh, frequent. The John, my, the John Coltrane, my Col- favorite things. Right. It's like 18 minutes long or something like that, you know. <laughs> well, legally, we can listen to about 30 seconds of it now. So how about we do that to transition into our conversation with Rob Deemer?
Rob Deemer, thanks so much for being on Trilogy with us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, um, as, as folks listening right now can hear, um, it sounds like you have a voice for media or public radio. <laughs> have you ever done anything like that? I actually have. Uh, several years ago, um, before I, I moved out to Western New York, I actually had a radio show in Oklahoma. Uh, called The Composer Next Door, where I did that for a couple of years, kind of featuring living composers around the country. Oh, wow. What was the, uh, the, the feedback that you would get for a show like that? It was actually surprisingly positive. There Good. was, I mean, because, you know, I was trying to uh, especially find composers all over the country in states that people might not have heard of. And uh, yeah, there was there were all of these composers around the country who were like, "Wait, you're putting me on the radio in Oklahoma," <laughs> and it and, and and a lot of the folks in Oklahoma really loved it. So yeah. it was surprising. Yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that. What what is you know you don't associate Oklahoma with the classical music scene. What was the scene like there? Well, it was it's it's actually funny. There's in Oklahoma City and in Norman, uh, where I was teaching for a year, and then I taught at Oklahoma City for a year. Um, there's actually a, a strong, thriving music scene. It's just Good. not as uh, maybe as as publicly known mm-hmm. uh, as in some of the other states where where it gets a little bit more attention. Um, and you know, I found myself being in Oklahoma for a year longer than I thought I was going to be, and so I just I'd always wanted to do a radio show and pitched it to the uh, um, NPR station there in Edmond, Oklahoma, and. The guy went for it. So, no, well, shout uh, out to them. Good that, to hear. That's actually how I got to know a lot of composers around the country because I just contacted them. This was back in like 2006. And I just sent a bunch of emails saying, Hey, can I put your music on the radio? And hundreds of CDs later, then <laughs> I found myself with this kind of network of kind of knowing everybody they're they're like oh you're you're that guy with the radio show in Oklahoma <laughs> <laughs> I'm like yeah when it works when I uh, started my radio career uh you know something that I was very actively thinking about was the fact that when I think of classical radio I'm thinking of a sound that doesn't really relate to my experience as a musician yeah. and and uh, I have to you know put into account that you know as a bassoon is coming up in the band world because it's band music is going to be more contemporary just right. automatically right. Um, but yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear that you had a uh, success with with new music on the on the radio well and it was it was fun because that was really the beginning of my first interest, which was to kind of advocate for living composers mm-hmm. because it seemed like, um, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Midwest, about an hour and a half outside of Chicago. And other than a few performances at the university there, I didn't really know that many living composers. Right. And so when, when I got out there after I did my doctorate, um, you know, that's, that's, that was the kind of the start of all of this stuff. Uh, was first thinking about living composers, and then later on, I, I kind of focused it a little bit with with my new initiative. Yeah, and you know, and, and you're advocating for um, you know composers and new music. You know, the other side of that is calling out the institutions that aren't advocating, and that's uh, we're, we're going to go uh, into that here in a bit, and uh, and and talk about um, you know how you got into this sort of uh, data collection corner of classical music. I don't, would you call yourself a statistician? Or? Oh God, no, no. Anyone who I I think I took one. Stats class back in my undergrad, and my teacher there would definitely not call me a statistician, <laughs> but maybe a data collector. And and uh, I don't know. I'm still learning how to analyze it all. 
Uh, D for data collector. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at least I'm getting the information and putting it out in a way that people can can digest it. Yeah. Um, uh, a few opuses back, uh, you know, Scott, we had Sam Bergman on, mm-hmm. and um, he brought up uh, a stat that found underrepresented composers, uh, women composers, composers of color, when it comes to their music being programmed uh, in American orchestras, it doesn't quite match uh, the number of performances of music only by Beethoven. You know, for me, that was just a shocking um, stat to learn. Are, are there other stats that uh, you found are shocking for people to hear? Well, yeah. Uh, first, to give context, uh, uh, I started looking at programs uh, back last February in in 2019. So just going on the internet and looking just what all the literally going are doing. on the internet. And first, I was like, oh, I'll hit the big orchestras, and I'm like, wait a minute, if we're really going to do this right. I want to be able to 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 get a really good sample size because okay. I had a I had an inkling that orchestras that were maybe a little bit further down down the budget size sure. uh, uh, ladder uh, might be doing things a little bit differently than some of the really large uh, budget orchestras and so yeah basically I started in February I think I finally stopped in. May or June at 120 orchestras around the country. Wow. And yeah, and then so those were the numbers that that uh, I've been kind of working with with my work with the Institute for Composer Diversity mm-hmm. uh, to be able to look at things like, okay, Beethoven had 400-something performances this year. Um, and then looking at, okay, how many women composers and how many composers of color and yeah, I mean, the number of underrepresented composers, if you combine all of those, is just a hair's breadth above all of the performances uh, with Beethoven. If you, if you parse it down a little bit more, there's almost as many performances of Mozart's work as there are of all composers of color. Wow. And so it really kind of points to how, even though, and, and we can talk about this in a little bit, the numbers of underrepresented composers are actually better this year than they have been in the past. Yeah. But there's still this habit by, by uh, programmers to really lean on uh, on, on the usual suspects, as I call them. Right. And, and even if, uh, you know, putting... Um IED I, I never know what order to put those three letters in but oh, sure. IED DIE what you know in in the in that conversation uh you know just putting that pushing that to the side sure so much Beethoven means that there is also no Kachachirian being programmed, Kabalevsky, you know, the, these other, even the European composers who uh, were given a, a backseat to so that we can hear Beethoven 4 one more time or Beethoven 9 one more time. Well, and this, this year is obviously a little different because of the 250th anniversary of Beethoven. Yeah. So that's what's, it's, it's, it's an interesting year to get started looking at these numbers because then... We want to see, all right, what happens in 21, 22 and 22, 23 after we get outside of, of uh, uh, this Beethoven fervor? Uh, my, I, I'm not sure what it's going to look like. However, looking back at some of the numbers that uh, the Baltimore Symphony did, because when they were doing some similar analysis a few years ago, and I think the numbers that I saw were actually even higher than they are this year. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I think it was up into the 600s back then. Oh, my goodness. Uh, because there wasn't as much push for women composers and composers of color. Back then, the numbers for them uh, were like at 1% to 2% uh, 
as kind of an average across the board over 80 orchestras that they analyzed. And this year, the numbers for women composers are at 8% okay. uh, and composers of color at 6%. So you look at those numbers in and of itself, it's not great, yeah. but you compare it to what it was maybe three, four years ago, and you're like, wow, that's like triple or quadruple what it was. So it's, it's, uh, these, these are some of the, the kind of the balances that I'm trying to look at in terms of what's the good news and what's the bad news and what are some of the things that we can do to nudge folks to do it better. Yeah, you know, uh, when you talked about going through all of those orchestras and, and uh, looking at their programs, uh, a question I thought of, I wonder if you um, saw any geographic um, data that was interesting. I mean, did you, did, did you see that, um, you know, this area is really concentrated with orchestras? Mm -hmm. it, it seems like maybe there aren't as many ensembles maybe in South Dakota or in Montana, Idaho. Sure, sure. I, yeah, I think there's obviously more orchestras on the eastern Half of the of of the United States mm -hmm. than than West. our our universe, yeah, <laughs> universe. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, in general, uh, actually, what was fascinating is to kind of dig down deeper into the, into the list of orchestras. I used the League of American Orchestras. Their their kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, budget categorization of them uh going through like the first five groups of them by budget size and it was really fascinating not only to see how many orchestras there are which surprised me i i didn't realize there were that many uh but also how actually kind of you know the the folks a little bit further down group threes group fours group fives um that don't have quite the the tradition and the probably the older, well-to-do sure. uh, donor base uh, in some of the smaller cities, uh, they actually have a lot more flexibility to to do some really interesting things programming-wise. Yeah, and it's been interesting to see kind of how how difficult it is for some of those larger orchestras that have. 80, 90, 100 works performed uh, or programmed in, in, a, in a season, it's much more difficult for them to be able to nudge, move their numbers than orchestras that are 30, 40, or 50 programmed right. works. Right, yeah, and we're definitely going to uh, circle back around to that conversation. Sure. Uh, but you said that uh, you grew up uh, about an hour and a half outside of Chicago. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is that where an instrument was put in your hands for the first time? How'd you, how'd sure. you get started? So I'm, I'm from DeKalb, Illinois, uh, where Northern Illinois University is, and it had a really good school of music, and I just, I remember someone, i watching concerts when I was a kid, actually going in and seeing the Chicago Symphony. Okay. And just always had this sense of I wanted to do music, and and for whatever reason, I thought saxophone was the thing to do. You're a sax player. I am okay. a saxophone player. <laughs> Baritone saxophone was my main instrument oh, wow. for okay. many, many years. Um, but then even even in high school, I, I, I was both... Uh, I started writing big band charts, uh, doing arrangements. Mm. I didn't know anything about composing. That came much later, but at least the idea of taking other people's music and then doing stuff with it. Uh, and then picked up a bunch of other instruments, flute, clarinet, tuba, mm -hmm. of all things. A as sax players tend to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. And, and actually coming at it from the jazz point of view, I played in band uh, and maybe every once in a while in orchestra, but you know, high school and then even into college, 
jazz was originally my main in, uh, interest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I went into undergrad, I thought I was going to be a high school band director in suburban Chicago. Yeah. I had no idea that I was, A, going to be a composer, and B, I would definitely not have known all of the other stuff that I've been doing over the, yeah. over the years. I wonder what you think about how the instrument um, that you choose, or in many cases, the instrument that chooses you impacts um, the perspective on classical music, quote unquote. I think before we uh, turned the microphones on, we were talking about um, the fact that I came up in the band world, so my ear was, you know, developed through more contemporary music than maybe if I had started on Suzuki violin. I I'm sure as a as a sax player, you know, that path looked even different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the fact that you know, from my instrument, I had next to no experience as a kid, probably not even into college, about playing much Mozart or Brahms or Beethoven or any of what we considered to be kind of the prototypical, you know, canonic composers. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, between either playing in jazz band or playing in concert band, you loved music, but you had you had this sense of, oh, but there's this kind of special group of composers and this special group of pieces uh, that you can go listen to, but mm -hmm. that I would never be able to actually integrate or, or, or interact with. Yeah. Um, and I think in, in part that is kind of, it really wasn't until I started conducting much later that I at least started to be able to uh, face that 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 dilemma and even, you know, composing. If, you know, the first time I had to write a string quartet, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because I hadn't grown up playing it or, yeah. or listening to it in the same way that I, I had grown up listening to Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington. Right, right. You know, you said that you were going to, uh, you know, be a band director. I, that was what I thought I was going to do, too. But, you know, things change. Uh, what, what sort of inspired that shift? Uh, well, it was, um, it, was, it was pretty sudden. To be perfectly sure. honest, okay. Um, I, I wrote a couple of big band charts for the arranging class uh, at Northern Illinois University, where I was doing my undergrad, and I always knew about the Downbeat Student Music Awards. Okay, and I thought, you know, I've written these two big band charts, an arrangement of "Come Sunday" by Duke Ellington, and I took a Thelonious Monk tune and kind of really ran with it and and kind of stretched it out to the point where it was hardly recognizable as the monk tune and i sent it in and um i remember you know they had this rule that you could only send in one per category they had a ranging category and what they called an extended composition category okay and i'm like well i haven't composed my teacher's like well just send it in see what happens and that won. It was the college oh my winner goodness. across the entire country. Mm. And that kind of woke me up to be like, wait a minute. You became famous <laughs> overnight. <laughs> well, and it really kind of woke me up because I, you know, I was here, I was 23, and I had no idea what composing was. Yeah. I had no one had ever shown me what composing was. And I literally won this National Composition Award and didn't even know what composing was. And oh so goodness. it kind of got me thinking, all right, Maybe I could do this for a living. And so the next couple of years, as I finished up my, my undergrad, um, then I, I kind of switched my, my sights to composing. But even back then, I was like, well, I could never actually become like a real composer. Uh, because, quote, unquote. Quote, unquote, because I, 
I wasn't Mozart. I wasn't writing things when I was 10. I, I had this real deep assumption that that's, you, you had to have been a composer from birth in order to do it. And so I thought, all right, I, I will go be John Williams. And so <laughs> I actually I, I, I applied for and, and got into the film scoring program at University of Southern California. Oh, yeah, go Trojans, and, fight and, on. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I, I lived in L.A. for three years oh. uh, and, and did film scoring before I finally decided maybe should, A, go you know, take a composition lesson and actually learn what that was like. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I missed education. I missed teaching. And so that's when I decided to go back and go do my graduate studies in composition. Okay. Well, I, I didn't know that we had the, the USC connection. I, well, there you go. I, I lived at Slauson <laughs> and La Brea uh, oh, yeah. during, during my time. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, um, so you know, developing um, yourself and your ideas around composition is—is is there a connection between that and the work uh, that folks know you for now, as far as this data collection and 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 talking about the way orchestras are programming? I think because I got into composition through several back doors. Yeah. Right. Um, it allows me to not have this sense of here's this body of work that should not be touched mm -hmm. and that cannot be moved. Uh, it allows for me to just look at things like, yeah, there's all of this different kind of music that's been written by all of these different composers, and I kind of see it all as really good, yeah. but not really thinking of it hierarchically in that in that way. Uh, and so it allows for me to be able to to uh, um, kind of you know if you know, I think some folks would be like how could you possibly not play this particular piece or mm -hmm. that particular composer and I'm like very easily yeah <laughs> it's really like, easy like you just this, don't press do play. it yeah <laughs> delete <laughs> or you just like choose not to play and it's and 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 one of the things that that we've been doing is not advocating completely deleting the canon mm. it's just you know the canon shouldn't be so large that it it isolates and 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 pushes aside all of these other voices that's and a, that's one of the things that i find is that when you talk about bringing new music or living composers onto the air like uh when we do our air shifts right. Um, the knee-jerk reaction seems to be it's at the um, expense right. of the canon. Yep. And that's not necessarily, you're, you're saying that's not it what you're advocating for. It is not a zero-sum game. Right. You know, the idea of bringing in more voices from, from different groups and different experiences, uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, that's, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Uh, because if we want to actually bring in more audiences, both listeners on the radio and audiences in, in, uh, in the concert halls, as well as reflecting our, our quickly diversifying uh, demographics in the student body, um, mm -hmm. it, it, you're gonna have you're either you're, you're either going to uh, uh, chase everybody away or just you know I, I hate the the, the the conversations folks have about dying, you know, classical music dying. They've been saying that yeah, for of decades. Yeah, of course, of course. But it, it, there is that idea of, like, if you allow for 20 or 40 or 60 composers from a very specific uh, time period and, and geographical reason to basically have a, a, a chokehold on, you know, all the music that you're, that you're listening to, 
uh, sooner or later, that's not sustainable. At mm-hmm. some point, it's going to change. Either the folks who are listening to it just tire or go away or, or all of that stuff. So this yeah. is hopefully going to encourage folks to be able to bring in a lot more, uh, or a much larger listening base mm. uh, for all of this stuff. And hopefully then we'll encourage more uh, students, uh, you know, younger people mm-hmm. uh, who are women and uh, students of color to start learning how to compose early on, and then that will grow the canon right. as we as we do. Right. But, to, but but to be fair, you know, a part of the conversation that I think we never actually get into is uh, that to to uh, further diversify and integrate more people in into the canon, quote unquote, or into the into the concert programs, into the radio programs. There is music that has to go away. You, you, it's it's mm, not o- it's not only addition. We have to yeah. talk about yeah. what what this music is taking the place of. Yeah. Is that yeah. something that you've kind of thought about? Absolutely. And uh, so, who do we um, need to throw away? Tell well, us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't point at any particular names. I will admit, in in the analysis that we did this year, um, there were numerous orchestras that programmed ten or more works, as many as sixteen works in one season by Beethoven. Not to kick Ludwig. I mean, I yeah, I I like him. I've actually conducted numerous of his works. Uh, and I would never say to not ever pro- pro- program them, uh, but that's a lot. Yeah. Even, even if, let's say, if you have 90, work, 90 programmed works in your season and 15 of them are by one guy, that's kind of out of balance. I'm trying to think you, what it would you, be. If you put that in radio terms, yeah. the, the frequency that that comes around, that would be like... Um, uh, on oldies radio, that would be like, uh, uh, let's just say Buddy Holly, a sure. Buddy Holly song coming on every 30 or 40 minutes. I would think, yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. And so one of the, one of the, the uh, we've, we've been trying to slowly uh, build strategies and best practices to kind of not just saying, hey, do better, mm. but actually give folks tools, uh, both resources, but then also strategies on how to be able to change it. And one of the strategies uh, that I've kind of come come to a realization that might work is for when orchestras, and when I say orchestras, I'm just thinking all ensembles, all programmers, sure, sure. but because it can be mapped onto practically anything. But to think of it intentionally before you even start programming and give yourself uh, some goals uh, when you're programming. And one of those goals can be no more than X number of works by any one composer. So sure. say for yeah. a small orchestra, it might be two. For a large orchestra, maybe three or four at the max. You know, I think that you know, that two to four is like, because mm-hmm. like, you know, even if let's say you have 80 works in your season, four works, that's sizable. You yeah. can go in here you know Mozart or Brahms four weeks out of the year that's 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 not bad every other week might be a bit much yeah yeah uh, and so by doing that and we actually uh did some numbers uh in it would have let's say if if we just said no more than two for all of the orchestras that that we looked at it would have opened up over 450 slots for right. for different works right so it's i mean that's those are the type of strategies where you're like 
all you have to do is just limit yourself here and then kind of give yourself a goal here. And then when you're starting to make your decisions, you're working within those confines. And then it doesn't feel like you're necessarily pulling someone out of a list. Sure. You're just kind of adjusting the list that you're that you're building. Sure. Yeah, and, and a couple seconds ago, you know, when I asked what does that look like when an orchestra programs 15 works by Beethoven, what are these works? I mean, are you doing all of the symphonies plus the choral fantasy plus a concerto here or there? I mean pretty much. I, I mean especially in his in his in this anniversary year. Yeah. That's the, what exactly what folks are doing. Every one every of the one symphonies, of the symphonies as well. Every one of the piano concertos, the violin concertos, many of if not all of the overtures, uh, I mean, it's, there's, yeah, and it's not, sizable. And not to mention that the violin concerto is something like 40 minutes, 42 oh, yeah. minutes. Like we, we don't air it all that often in its entirety sure. because that would take up most of the yeah. hour. You and know? the ninth is basically that's your evening. Yeah, right there. yeah, that as well. Um, I'm wondering, um, you know, what keeps, what, what keeps you so uh, fired up about this work? Because, you know, many people would, would look at you and see someone who isn't representative of one of these marginalized communities. So, you know, why have you dedicated so much of your time to this? That's a great question. Um, well, the entire project started several years ago in 2016 when I basically started a project for my students that I teach at, at State University of New York at Fredonia, I thought, hey, this would be a good resource for them to find women composers. Mm. And so I started a spreadsheet with just names and links to their website. And I started off with 200 names. And as I was doing that, I'm like, hey, you know, it would be great if they could like search by different parameters. They could have you know, look for composers who were who weren't living anymore, or where they were living. Uh, you know, like what state or city, sure, uh, or what genre of music they were they were uh, writing, or even what their racial and ethnic demographics were. And then, as I was doing that, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't a student project. This could be something that was useful for yeah. everyone. And then, over the years, uh, that kind of grew to include all of. Um, you know, composers of color, and now we're also going to soon we're going to be including um, LGBTQ yep. uh, composers as well in into that. And why? I think it kind of goes back to when I when I was talking about the uh, the radio show. I'd already already kind of had this mindset of kind of advocating for for living composers um, in my writing for New Music Box and, and the radio show and all of these things. Uh, but then looking at the numbers and and realizing how like living composers did not have a have it great, but underrepresented composers that was obnoxious. Sure. And so it was just like, well, let me let me try and see if I can help things out. And then as it went along and finding out how much of a gap there was, like there pretty much was very few resources that people could use to search and browse and discover. Uh, new composers and then new works, and as I've been doing this, I'll tell you. I mean, it's it has. I I mean, I love teaching and I love composing, but I don't know if I've ever done anything that has been as satisfying as it is to be able to allow folks to be able to have their works discovered uh, and to have all of these conductors and educators come to me and be like. I can't believe all of these new, you know, pieces of music that I had never yeah. known about. Yeah. And it, it's not that they weren't there. Mm -hmm. It's just they don't even know where to find, to, to start to look for them. Right. And so, 
you know, it seems like a relatively easy and simple thing to do. But as I've been going down this path, um, I'm starting to discover all of the systems that are creating barriers for this. And I always like puzzles, which is part of the reason why I like composing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by trying to figure out how to be able to both convince people through advocacy and then also, you know, analyze the systems by which these um, these inequities are, are happening. It's amazing. I, it just it's to be able to to know that I'm helping things across the country. Yeah, um, is something that I would have never even guessed that I would be able to do. And at this point, I kind of describe it as I have the tiger by the tail, and okay. now I'm mm-hmm. just a matter of like, okay, I guess this is what I'm doing for <laughs> the foreseeable future, and and, and let's let's uh, let's dig deep into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a in a past opus, we talked about it was. Uh, uh, Kathleen Bradbury. Yeah, yeah. Um, she makes the point of when you grow up or work in a system with flaws, it is difficult to see that flaw because you're in it. Mm. Okay, so you uh, obviously have had this clarity come about. What would you say to people who are trying to uh, be an ally in this and are trying to help? people of color, people of the LGBTQ plus communities get their music played, uh, even even down to somebody like me. What what would you say to the possible ally? Uh, There's a a lot there. Um, I think for, I never really use the term ally because it kind of feels like I'm intending to be a thing. I'm just seeing it as, dude, this is the right thing to do. Like and um, not trying to attempt to be be someone out out there. I, I mm, guess in terms of point. motives, yeah. you know, it's it's um, to give an example. One of the um, habits that ensembles have been doing the last few years is to focus. They will take an entire concert and they will focus on. African American composers or women composers, often in February or in March because of those things, <laughs> yep. and and it will feel to them. I think I'm kind of uh, projecting, but I am assuming that they're feeling like that's what we should do. We should do something that's nice and public, and it's and get it out nice of the way and get well, I, yeah, get it out of the way. But it's also <laughs> this nice, neat, neatly wrapped package of like and here's our diversity package right over here and that's tough because like okay well that's better than not doing it at all but at the same time what happens is that they're not listening to the people who they are trying to help Mm. and i know from having heard from many of my colleagues who are women and composers of color for years they hate being on those those concerts Mm -hmm. because you know for all of the reasons it's being isolated you're being quote-unquote special Mm -hmm. and the idea of if you want to do it right the biggest thing is to just normalize it yeah i've been that it's 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 across the board and it shouldn't be any more quote-unquote special to have a work by courtney bryant or jennifer higdon um you know, on a concert than Brahms or Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been asking a lot of people that question. Is it more equitable in your eyes to have 
these uh, these pieces all throughout the seasons or in special concerts? And the overwhelming response is all throughout, yeah. followed very closely by both. Right. Yes. Sure. Sure. And there's in the same way that you see, you know, concerts where they'll be like, "Here's a bunch of Russian composers." Right. You know, mm-hmm. it's very right. easy mm-hmm. for them. Or here's mm-hmm. the French composers. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. it's kind of like, yeah, but you can't treat women, let's say, women composers like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because there's a whole lot of women composers. Yeah. And and to be able to kind of, uh, you know isolate them in the same way that you would say a concert with Ravel and WC and, and all those, uh, and then say, okay, we're done check. And then go on to the next thing. Um, ultimately the, the analogy that I like to use is, is back about 15 years ago when the country was moving away from smoking in bars. And I was living in Texas and in Oklahoma during that time. And I remember it was really a big deal. Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. For the idea of like, what do you mean I can't smoke in, yeah. in this bar? And then you look at the world now, 15 years later. And if you lit a cigarette in a bar, um, oh. people <laughs> would be like, what are you doing? Right. They would look at you like... they. You, it was. It would. The the culture has shifted. Yeah. It took some time, but that culture shifted to the point now where if you did that, you would. It would. It would be very obvious. And I think that's hopefully what we're trying to do. Yeah. The idea of looking at a season and being like, having just a handful of composers of color or a handful of women composers, that should. We should react to that in the same way as if someone lit up a cigar in a in a bar today, yeah, <laughs> or, or or in a restaurant. You know, you don't want to have to smell uh, cigarette smoke exactly. while you're having dinner. Same. I mean, it's it's a it's a weird analogy, but at the same time, no, it, it's that it, kind yeah. of cultural shift that will take time. Yeah. Um, both through just changing minds, but then also changing policies and procedures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can't let you go without uh, getting back to uh, a conversation that that we kind of touched on earlier. So, um, you know, I spent five seasons uh, with the Knoxville Symphony. You know, a, a smaller organization, um, and I have to say, you know, shout out to uh, Aram Demergen. Um, you know, he really programs thinking about these things. You know, I remember on the last Fourth uh, of July pops uh, that I played down there, uh, we featured uh, Florence Price's um, "Dances in the Cane Breaks." We uh, mm-hmm. that that makes it through our playlist uh, every now and again, Scott. Um, and you know, just my thinking about the fact that wow, is this the first time I've ever performed a black composer on a Fourth of July pops? You know, now if you go here, I'm just going to name some orchestras. If you if you go to um, hear the Boston Pops on on 4th of July, or, or even if you go hear the Chicago Symphony uh, any time of year, that programming is going to be much more rigid. It seems like it's the smaller organizations that are really uh, taking the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and working to change things in a real way and not just have the conversations. I get so, frust- I get so frustrated, you know, and, and, when, you, and when you talk about um, the way that we conceptually rank these orchestras, how music students practice to hope so that they can hopefully get a job with the New York Phil, LA right. Phil, even though these are the organizations that really aren't um, uh, doing the work, quote unquote, that they could be doing with as much visibility they have. Is, is this something that you've considered as well? Absolutely. You know, and I think it's partially it's because they, they, they have a little bit more flexibility. Uh, they don't have quite as much pressure coming at them from, say, their boards or their donor base. 
but also I think I'm seeing more and more of these smaller kind of mid-level, mid-tier orchestras mm-hmm. um, really making it a priority. And, and you know, there are some orchestras that have really taken that. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm thinking River Oaks Chamber Orchestra mm-hmm. down in Houston, Albany Symphony, uh, Chicago Symphonietta. Those are, those oh, are yeah, three. Yeah, that, they, yeah. they have set that as a priority, and they are running with it. But then you look at some of these other orchestras that also have some really good, uh, you know, ba- I, w- I wouldn't even say diverse, but just balanced programming around the country. And that's not an accident mm. because you don't just accidentally program all of these living and, and diverse composers. You have to really put some thought into it. Yeah. And the fact that you're seeing a fair chunk of, of those kind of mid-tier orchestras doing it I'm hoping that that kind of then resonates up into some of the the top tier orchestras. Trickle and up, th- yeah, trickle <laughs> up exactly. And I am seeing that even uh, even just in the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at St. Louis Symphony and Los Angeles Philharmonic. Those numbers compared to what it was even three and four or five years ago mm-hmm. have increased dramatically, and it's because I think. Um, you know they have put that priority out there, and and it's a little bit more work, and it might be take a little bit more time for them to um, get their audiences on board. But yeah. ultimately, if they're setting that as a priority, they're going to do it. Yeah, and because you know, as you just said, you know the intentional programming, the intentionality behind it. You know, in 2020, it's gonna you know it's getting harder and harder for the season that has no diversity on it to not look intentional, you know, yeah. and which will in turn uh, mean I'm not coming to the concert and, you know, it, you know how, how that just tr- trickles out everywhere. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in, in closing here, um, are, are there any of these institutions that you are working to collaborate with, large orchestras, maybe maybe even schools, colleges, universities? Sure, sure. Well, I've... I've... I have. It's been fun because I've been able to put, a, you know, find a lot of collaborators, both individuals working with me on my team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a number of folks across the country uh, working with us on both on the analytical front and then also helping to um, do data entry for our databases, which are huge. Mm-hmm. We've already got a composer database and a works database, and that's going to be growing exponentially over the next couple of years. Um, but we've been talking a lot. I mean, I've been uh, talking especially with organizations like the National Association for Music Educators. Mm. Uh, that is is going to be a strong um, uh, partnership because it's great to be able to change things at the professional level. But I truly believe that if we can change how students are exposed to to diverse programming at an early age all the way through K-12, then by the time they get into higher ed, and then you need to change that as well, by the time they get into the professional world, it will be normalized. Mm -hmm. It won't be nearly as special. It will just be expected. It's part of their makeup. And so that may take 10 or 15 years to be able to move those needles. 
Um, but yeah, we've been talking, especially with American Composers Forum, working a lot with American Composers Orchestra uh, to be able to find ways to be able to kind of work these things around. Uh, and then I've had a number of other orchestras kind of connect with me and kind of ask questions and be like, hey, what can we do a little bit? Do you have any some suggestions? And so it's it's going to take a little while uh, for for those things to happen, but it's it's definitely feeling like it's going in the right direction. Yeah, and we really appreciate the work you're doing in that regard. Before before we uh, give you the space to give all your contact information and everything, I want to know what composer you're really excited about that might be new to the, the people that uh, are listening to the podcast right now. Oh, my goodness. Um, you're going to make someone really happy and a lot of people really say, mad. <laughs> so, so, so I will, I will, I will, I will politically deflect that. <laughs> um, because, because, and I, I really do feel this is this is this is how I, I address this to anyone who asks. Um, I am a white straight male with tenure. I am like the post child of all that is not what we're trying to push. You and I, and so right, and so uh, so the last thing I want to do is either create the perception or really be anything related to a gatekeeper, quote-unquote. Mm. I, I don't want to, to be like, oh, here's my favorite cohort of composers. So if someone asks me, hey, can you help us out, I will give them a list of 20 or 30 composers that I will have gone yeah. through and tried to find uh, you know, a good balance of both gender and identity and heritage um, and, and, re and then really kind of let them come up with their own because I, I have my own proclivities, mm -hmm. but you know, the idea of uh, literally what we're trying to do is, is ask people to not think of who are your favorite composers because that's your favorite composer. We, mm -hmm. we just, uh, the idea of a conductor going, okay, I'm going to program these works cause I like these works. I'm kind of like, how about you find what your audiences or even the people who aren't your audiences yet might like That's and good. then program those. Well, well then, well, well, let me ask you this then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you talked, you talked about how uh, Barry Sachs is your primary. Sure. What, what's a, what's a Barry Sachs feature or a Barry Sachs uh, uh, tune that we can all just go listen to today to refresh ourselves on. Oh on that my sound? goodness. All right. So, so the, the one that pops into my head really quick is uh, Monin. By, by Charles Mingus. Go listen to that. Either the original uh, with Pepper Adams or, uh, or, or some of the newer recordings by the Mingus band. Uh, that's, yeah, I would, I would say go back to the original uh, with Pepper Adams playing uh, Barry Sachs. And, uh, a lot of and, smoking in those clubs and oh, bars back yeah. then. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And the Ming, I mean, Mingus, Mingus, Monk, and Ellington were my three early favorite composers. And uh, that would be a wonderful send-off. We got him to shout out some composers. We did it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Huh. So how, how, can, uh, how can everyone um, check out some of this data you've compiled, sure. uh, uh, be involved with the uh, Composer uh, Diversity Project and all those things? So the Institute for Composer Diversity uh, is, uh, we are located at the State University of New York at Fredonia. Um, you can find us at ComposerDiversity.com. Uh, easiest way to then connect with us on on Twitter at uh, Composer Project, or uh, on Facebook. You can look up the institute and find us there. 
Um, and uh, my contact information is on the on the site. If uh, we have forms for folks to be able to send in suggestions or questions, uh, or even if you know of composers that would be good to add to the thing, there's a form to, for folks to fill that out as well. Nice, Rob. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a Absolutely. pleasure. Absolutely, Garrett and Scott. Thank you so much. Thanks. You know, Rob had uh, a little bit of difficulty getting to Detroit. The The weather was fierce up in New York State at that time, and he was oh, it driving. Sure was. Yeah. But it was great to have him come in, and uh, what an illuminating conversation, too. I'm so glad that he put that project together and, and found such rich data to show us exactly uh, where the blind spots are in live orchestral music. And what an honor to have him on Triloquy. We talk about change makers, arts right. leaders. He is that. If anyone is, he is that, you know. So, um, again, I really uh, encourage you to go take a look at the uh, Institute for Composer Diversity website. Um, while you're in the description of this opus, again, don't forget to uh, find out more information about the uh, relief fund that uh, New Music USA has put out for musicians who have been financially impacted by the uh, coronavirus. And, yeah, um, a, a really great conversation with him. I, I hope to uh, see the change that he that he is initiating. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. So, uh, Scott, a lot uh, to be excited about uh, for April, uh, uh, upcoming opuses of Triloquy. Um, at this point, we've already recorded the very special 420 opus, mm -hmm. so I'm excited about that. That will feature John Del Vento. He is a composer who actually composes uh, music for a show I watch every week, Love and Hip Hop. Shout out, <laughs> shout out to you if you watch Love and hip hop, whichever city uh, is your favorite. I think I prefer Atlanta. Um, and then uh, we also have interviews. At <coughs> we also have a two-parter scheduled with uh, Brandon Keith Brown, who is quite infamous these days. He was fired from Brown University um, uh, as their music director and claimed uh, racial bias. Mm -hmm. That got lots of um, pushback on both sides, so uh, looking forward to speaking with him. And I think we're going to uh, round out April's opuses of Triloquy uh, with a conversation I had uh, with Amari Ford, who lives down in Oklahoma, Rob Deemer's former uh, stomping grounds. Yeah. And um, he, he's trying to put together a music camp, considering that we'll still be able to have those this summer, you know, with everything that's going on in, in the news and everything. So, yeah, lots of really uh, great stuff coming up in April. Um, uh, I encourage you, I personally encourage you to, um, you know, give us a, a comment, uh, click um, five stars or however many stars <laughs> you think we deserve. Um, you know, as we approach um, the first full year of Triloquy, it's, wild. It, it's, it's really nuts that we have managed to stay consistent week to week, considering everything that's happened. So uh, we really appreciate having uh, you along as a listener and um, can't wait to have you here next time. So we'll see you then. And remember, you you can also reach out if you have any questions, comments, slanderous remarks, triloquy at AmericanPublicMedia.org. Don't worry about bleeping out the curse words either. I can take it. I'm a big boy. Yeah. <laughs> See y'all next time.